0: Lord, we just come before you. We ask that you bless this time as we open your word, that we will see what you'd have us to see from these lessons from Deuteronomy, and that you will bless each person that's here and anybody who might be on their way, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 15. We just got done talking about the dietary laws and the tithing laws for the Jews, and now we're going into a law that's very much a Jewish activity. I've never heard any, any place else that had such a law. Verse 1. At the end of every seven years you shall make a release. And this is the manner of the, of the release. Every creditor that lends ought to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may exact it again, but that which is yours with your brother your hand shall release. "...save then there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it. Only if you carefully hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to observe and do all these commandments which I command you this day, for the Lord your God blesses you and as he promised you, and you shall lend unto many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you." So we want to look at this. Every seventh year for the Jews was a year where all the debts were released. So if you borrowed money during that seven years, at the end of the seven years, your debt was forgiven. So it's quite an interesting concept. And uh, why was this? Because God wanted the people to take care of each other. He didn't want them hurting one another. Matter of fact, when you lend this money out to a fellow Israelite, as an Israelite, you couldn't even charge interest to them. It would be a simple loan. They paid you back over the time with no interest. You you could charge interest to the foreigner or non-Jewish individuals, but they couldn't charge interest to themselves. And every seventh year, they would get their debts released. And this is something that It's a very good picture of what God does for us. He releases the debt that we owe him. And all of us owe him a debt and we cannot pay that debt back because sin is a debt that we cannot pay back. It has earned death and God through Jesus forgives it. Now he doesn't have to forgive it every seven years. He just forgives it and it is gone and he will never loan have that debt come back to us. So we see this picture of no indebtedness for the Israelite people, or very short term de- uh, indebtedness. In Israel, there wouldn't be any 30 year house loans, or even 15 year house loans, because at the end of seven year, the loan was paid, was released, no matter how much you had left on it. And this is what he's saying that you, if you lend to your brother, it shall be released, and you will not go back and say, okay, I, I let it go in the seventh year. And now you owe me the money. They, they couldn't come back and say that they was re-owed. Yeah. And that's what it says in, in at the end of that. You shall not exact it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. And this goes into, there's a statement that every, people use quite frequently. You can't out God. And this, I've been finding out, is very true. The more I give to him, the more he gives back. And I've known people, or I've read of people anyway, maybe not known them, but read of people who really gave and gave to God. And God just kept, you know, they're handing handing it to God by the shovel loads and he's dumping it in by the dump truck loads back on them. It's an amazing thing that God does. And he says, you're going to care for one another and I will be the one that blesses you. When they were forgiven these loans, God says, I will take care of it. You will be blessed. Because he said, when you get into the promised land, in verse four, he says, Save when there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless you in the land which, you, which he gives you. God's plan when they got to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, would be that there would be no poor. No poor to be taken care of. No, nobody with need. Now we know they didn't keep God's rules and they had the famines and the, and the poverty. But you know, we have this to look forward to when we... Enter into heaven. We get the new heaven and the new earth. It will be a perfect environment again. And just think what that would be like. You, know, you want you want to eat? There's plenty of food all over the place. The, the The trees are growing. the The vines are growing. You can eat whatever your heart desires, because it'll be in plenty, just as it was in the Garden of Eden. And no no death, no decay. That says the tree of life produces its its. Fruit in its season in its months and there's going to be that tree to eat there'll be plenty the we're given the picture of the child eating the eating the fruit at the uh, hole of a asp, and not having to worry because there's not going to sting and bite them anymore a perfect environment where we can be free without worry and no debt no struggles no need for worry because God is the one providing everything. And you know, that happens for us as Christians. Even today, if we're willing to trust him, he will provide what we need. It's amazing to me when I, especially this last three years before I got the job at the prison, people would always be coming up to me, especially family. Well, how are you going to do this? How are you going to pay this bill? How, is it, how are you going to handle this? I'm going, God will take care of it. And God took care of it. And it's amazing, the more we trust and just have confidence in Him, the more we see Him work. And this is something I want to challenge everybody to do. Listen to God. Be willing to obey. Don't be foolish with your money and just throw it away wastedly, but give it to the poor, give to the church, give to the ministries. Use it and watch God work. Because He promises He will. He, and he is perfectly able to make it happen. And it's it's always been amazing to me to watch the way God works in my own life and to have read the different testimonies of this. And the one I love to tell is that Dallas Seminary, when it was first starting, they were in financial trouble. And, they, and all these big name people that write all the books that, that we now study from were all in the president's office praying for God to to meet the financial need, and one of them said, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, you know, uh, say, why don't you sell a few and send them our way, and they get a knock on the door, and I've told the story, but, and the, and the secretary goes, excuse me, and they go, we're, we're, we're in real deep prayer right now, we need, we need to, well, there's this gentleman out here who insists on seeing you, and they go, okay, send him, and he goes, well, I'm a, I own such and such ranch, and I just sold a bunch of cattle, and I wanted to give the money to the seminary, <laughs> you know, it's amazing what God can do, will do for us when we just have faith in what he can do. And doesn't necessarily mean he's going to give us everything we want because everything we want is probably not good for us. He'll give us what we need. And oftentimes he throws in wants just for good measure, just as any parent would. I want to give you something that's special, not just... None of us, when we raised our kids, if we could afford it at all, just gave them a roof over their head, food on the table, and and a minimal amount of clothes on their back. We gave them uh, games and toys to play with. We We bought them an occasional really nice outfit that they wanted just because they wanted it, even though it wasn't a practical thing. God does the same for us at times. He just says, okay, let me just bless you with this and gives you something above and beyond the needs. He is not looking at us to be penniless and poor. He wants to give us blessings. But he will not give us so many blessings that we did st- start forgetting that he's the benefactor. And this we've seen also in, this, in our world. Many rich kids who get just about everything they want become spoiled, rotten brats, and nobody wants to be around them or know them because they are used to getting whatever they want, and they've learned no discipline. They have been ruined and God's saying, I want you just to take care of one another. He says, when you give to your neighbor, give it to them. And don't be stingy. And when the seventh year comes, forgive it. And this is, this is going to be something. This is an idea that I have told people. When I give somebody money, I don't lend money out to people. I give, if I have the money and I can afford to give it, I give them the money. If they want to pay it back, that's between them and God. I don't ever look at seeing the money back because I've made a gift of it. What's the great advantage of that? I never have to look at somebody and say, well, they owe me this because, because I gave it to them. It wasn't, it wasn't no strings attached. It was just given to them and, and God said, God bless this person. Now, I don't always have money to give somebody, but when I do, it's just a, it's just a gift. And that way, I'm never looking at people and saying, well, they owe me all this money and it's because that's a sad way to be when you're looking at somebody and all you're seeing is, oh, they owe me. They owe me, whether it's money or things or stuff or, or, or uh, activities or whatever it is. You never want to get to that place. We just want to make gifts to people. And this is what God was telling people. It's going to become a gift. If it's not paid back, it's a gift and I will reward you for it. And God is very great about that. And again, we see just what we saw earlier: the foreigner. We talked, you know, two weeks ago. We talked about if something was dead on its own right, you could they couldn't eat it, but they could sell or give it to foreigners. Here we see the same thing. You don't have to forgive the debt to a foreigner because they're not family. And God is saying the same thing. God is forgiving those who come to him in Jesus Christ. The ones who are not coming to him are going to pay. They will pay for their rejection of Jesus Christ and they will end up in hell. But those who are family, he's forgiven everything. You just think about this, the debt that we owed God, we couldn't pay it. The the parable of the man who owed 10,000 talents, you know, which is more money It's 10,000 days wages. I mean, it was so large he wasn't going to pay it off ever. And he forgave it to him. Why? Just because he wanted to show his mercy and his love. That's our debt to God. Our debt to God is something we cannot pay no matter what. It's like one sin owed to multiple Googleplexes of goodness, and it still wouldn't be enough because it cannot be paid. Because God says one is, one is all it takes to be separated. And here he's saying the day of forgiveness, the day of release. And it says, that there will be no, people, no poor among you if you pay, in verse five, if you carefully pay attention and hearken to the word of the Lord, his commandments, keep his law, keep his word. Now we know that they did not <laughs> And we know they could not. And this is, this is the one thing, whenever I read Exodus, Leviticus, and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I look at this and God keeps saying, I want you to keep my commandments. I want you to keep my commandments. I want you to keep my commandments. If you can keep my commandments, you're gonna get these great blessings. And yet we know there was no way they could keep his commandments. Now there were times when they did a better job than others. People like Josiah, Hezekiah, Daniel when they ran the country generally with righteousness and the people did better at keeping the commandments but they never kept all the commandments and they could not keep all the commandments which also shows you God's grace in action with them when they couldn't keep all the commandments and yet he still blessed them because they had the right general attitude and that's how he looks at us when we're living our daily walk with him He knows that we cannot walk perfect. He knows that. And yet, because of his great mercy, he does not judge us. Through his grace, he gives us blessings. Because he knows that we cannot keep all the commandments. Now remember, we always think of the Ten Commandments, but there's 613 commandments in all that God gives. And I'm trusting that the Jews knew how to count them up because I've never tried to count them. So I'll just trust their count. They, this is their expertise to count laws. <laughs> so I'll, I will trust that they are right, that there are 613 of them. But there's no way that every law could be kept. And then when Jesus intensifies them, he says, even if you think about breaking it, you've broken the law. If you thought about adultery, you thought about lust, you thought about lying, you thought about being angry so much that you wanted to murder somebody. As far as God's concerned in your mind, you have crossed the line into sin. And having said that, we always are careful. It doesn't mean that the consequences are the same. The fact that you have thought it but not done it is not the same thing as having done it. The consequences are much worse for the actual doing. But God is saying... You owe this debt. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to bless you as you walk into the promised land. The promised land of eternal life. Is there a verse that backs that up? The degrees of uh, accountability for sin? Major and minor? What I mean by that is as far as God's concerned, they're the same. But for the consequences, the actual physical consequences, there's a big difference between thinking a crime and and committing a crime. Okay, uh, just thinking about getting angry at a brother and wanting to kill him is not enough to get you executed for murder. But God is going to. God is going to say you've committed murder in your mind. He couldn't out the same justice for a minor sin as opposed to a larger sin. Because sin to him is sin. For God's purposes, is irrelevant. Irrelevant, yeah. That's bad. Because God's attitude, and if you look in Proverbs, where many times where it says these seven things God hates, yeah. and you look at it, we would put murder, homosexuality, adultery, fornication. God puts lying lips, gossip. The things that hurt the soul are what God really hates because of the damage that they do internally to people. Because you look at those lists, there are always those things that hurt people deeper than the flesh. Uh, to kill somebody is a terrible thing, but is probably not as bad as destroying them emotionally with, with your words. And we've seen, you know, there are people out there that are still suffering to this day, they may be 50, 60, 70 years old, and they're still suffering for things their father or mother or grandparents said to them when they were a child. And they might, it might have been better for them to be dead than to have gone through the suffering that they've gone through and the self-loathing that they go through and, the, and just the problems that they have because of the low esteem, self-esteem that they've had, trying to live up, make themselves pl- pleasing to the parent who didn't want anything to do with them. So God really hates those things that hurt the soul, which is why he tells us as Christians that we're to edify, we're to build up, we're to love one another. When we get done with people, they should want to do better because they have been built up and edified. And you think about this, when you're told what a good job you're doing, your first thought may be, oh yeah, you, you know, not really. But then that second thought comes into your mind and going, you know, I kind of like this. Somebody, somebody thought I did well. As long as you're not just flattering somebody. You don't want to just flatter somebody. And this is what I say, when you're edifying somebody, you make sure that it's based in truth, not just saying something to be kind. There's a balance in there between flattery and overloading them and just giving them an edif- a word of edification. They get, their big, they get the big head yeah. and I've seen it in many times when I would promote somebody you know they're a really good leader people are following after them they don't have a title and everybody's following them they're the one that makes sure things get done and as soon as you promote them and give them the title all of a sudden it goes to their head and they become total idiots and you have to take them back to the office and say I promoted you because you were a good leader you didn't need to go into this power trip and 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 title trip you are a leader go back to what you were doing before I gave you the title because you're making a mess of what you were, were doing. But this ha- it does happen. When you give somebody the praise, sometimes it can go to their head. It is still better than the constant criticism. I have seen so many lives that are pretty much destroyed by criticism. I've seen Christians who have been criticized by other Christians because they're not living up to whatever that Christian standard is. And then the next thing you know, they're saying the heck with it. I don't want to go to church. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with God. I'm just going to go lick my wounds in, 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 in the dark. And Satan loves that attitude because then he gets hold of them. In, in our day and age, it's even part of our worldview that's being shot at us is that thin skin. Don't let anybody say anything negative. And this is why during this election season, it's been so hard because everybody is at each other's throat. Well, you mean you voted for this person or that person or on this issue or that issue? And if you even say anything against the other side's point of view, not even against them, but just their way of thinking, all of a sudden you're under attack. And it's being brought very much into our world because of this whole idea of, there is no right or wrong, and you just have to accept everybody's point of view as equal to your point of view, which makes honest discussion hard sometimes, mm. because they look at you and go, well, that's just your point of view. How can how can you think you're right? God says it. It's true. Even at that, when we get done and out of the way, we still need to love one another, even if we believe different things about different activities. Right now, even the churches are trying to heal themselves, because there are a number of people that could not vote for Trump because of his personality problems and could and voted for Hillary for other reasons. And other people have said, well, there was just no way they could vote for Hillary because of her issues and voted for Trump. And there are both sides hammering each other because how could you sell out your biblical viewpoint? Well, because there's nothing in the Bible that said you had to vote for one or the other. The problem that we as Christians sometimes have is we're looking for the perfect candidate, but the unfortunate thing is Jesus is not running on the running for president. So we will never find a perfect candidate, so we end up having to vote for the lesser of two evils. And most everybody else has been, okay, who's the, who's the best of the worst? And so we need to be able to keep that in mind. We're, we're looking for the best candidate out there, not the perfect candidate. key that we have to do as Christians is, government is not our savior. Government is not the answer to our problems. We need to pray and get god to convict and change people's lives and hearts in the early part of our country you pretty much had to be a christian to even hold office in many of the states it was official you had to be a christian to hold office you had to take a oath of belief in the bible and that jesus was the only way and and i think it was 12 of the 13 colonies had this until the supreme court said that it was illegal to do so it was originally a very much important thing they knew you wanted righteous people governing governing our people now their righteousness is like doesn't even people don't even care whether they're righteous or not it's just what do you you know how much money you're going to be able to throw my way and I'll vote for you and our founding fathers knew from the Greek philosophers that a republic would not work long term because they go the Greek philosopher said the day that the, the politicians find they uh, realize that they can buy the vote from the largeness or the taxes the republic's over. Our politicians are now buying the vote from the taxes. Our republic really is over. It's just a matter of time on how long it lasts. It is gone. Because every politician promises to spend the money out of their taxes to get back to people. They're buying the vote. So the republic is over. It's just a matter of time that we either have a rebellion and restart it, restart it from scratch or some other form of government takes over. But that is historically the fact that we know and they knew because Greek, Greece and Rome were both republics and they lasted until the point when the politicians started buying the vote. And then they, felt they toppled shortly thereafter, shortly meaning within 100, 100 to 150 years. Our republic is over. It's just a matter of how, how far are we into that period of time and what will follow? That scares me. <laughs> All we can do as Christians is pray for our country, repent, work at getting revival, that is our only great hope, is if we get a revival in this country and get righteous people running this country. That's our only hope. It's not going to start from the top down. It starts from the bottom up. And that's what happened in the, the Great Awakening in the 17, uh, late 1600s, early 1700s. It's what happened in the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. And if there's a third one, some people already say that we've had a third one with the Jesus Movement in the, in the 60s and 70s. And that could be because there was a righteousness that started. It was not near as good as the two other awakenings. But our only great hope is for revival to spread across this country. And it has to start in the churches. And the sad thing is there's so many quote-unquote Christian churches that don't believe the Bible anymore. So they won't, it will be hard to get a true revival started. Now, I'm not going to say it's impossible because nothing is impossible with God, but it's going to be difficult. So what they call a grassroots effort? It, I mean, they, by our definition, they'd say grassroots, but it starts with God's people. It starts with each church reaching out and changing their community, and those communities then changing the state, and then the state changing the country. And if you're really fortunate, then the whole thing spreads out across the world, and it, that would be the utopia that everybody wants, and it won't happen because Revelation tells us it won't happen. <laughs> But that is the ultimate of the, the great greatest revival. All of this comes down to God forgiving our debt. And this picture that he gives it was Israel forgiving the debts. And he says, if you obey me, you won't have poor. You won't have poor in your land. Now we know Jesus said to, to, the, uh, to the Judas when he said the, the ointment should have been sold and get and the money given to the poor. And all he wanted was the money in the bag so he could take it. But and Jesus' answer to him was, you will always have the poor. We will always have the poor until when the new heaven and new earth comes along and everything's perfect. We have our ownership of things and we will have plenty of food, plenty of everything and not have to worry about it. And that's ultimately where there will be no poor because the poor will already have been taken care of. And God will be dealing with everything in a brand new start. And then Jesus, then in verse 6, it says, For the Lord your God blesses you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. The first half of this has been pretty much the tradition for the Jews is they have been the money lenders for, they, they are known for handling their money well because God has blessed them. Plain and simple, God has blessed them. It's not necessarily from any great smarts that they have, It is just God blessing them and for the most part they have not been reigned over other than the period of the judges where they back and forth because of their sin and through various kings but when Israel is following God in any way shape or form they're not reigned over. They haven't been a great nation but they also are not controlled and ruled over. Even in the days of the Roman Empire they capitulated to Rome and and had a lot of rights under Roman, Roman government, they still got to worship God at their temple in the first part of the Roman Empire because they had surrendered to Rome and Rome gave them a lot of extra rights. Because usually they conquered the people and said, you're going to worship Caesar. But they had the right, they worshiped their God, they worshiped in, in their way, they weren't ruled in, a, in an oppressive way. Yes, Rome, they were, they, Rome was over them, they taxed them and all of this, but they gave them a lot of freedom within that. When they went into Babylonian captivity, the people were spread all over, the, all over the world, and they still kept their Jewishness. They still worshiped God. They still honored God, and they were being blessed by God because of their following the ones that followed Him. This has been something that we've seen over and over and over again in their history. And they don't lose their identity. They stay as Jews. And so God has said, you will... And if they had been very obedient to God, they would have had none of those times of, of lapse during the, during the judgments. And God still does the same thing with us. He says, we are special. We are going to, we're going to be blessed when we follow him. When we disobey, he disciplines us, but there's still that love and that kindness. Have you noticed when you were being disciplined by God, you still have that peace that passes understanding deep down. It may be kind of lost. You may be a little more fretful than you should be, but there's deep down, you still have God in your life, and there's still that deep passion and understanding that God is in control. And this is the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that we have what what we're told in the New Testament, a peace that passes understanding. Why do we have that peace? Because God's in control. Because he's in control, I don't have to be threatened fretful about that's going on in my life because ultimately he's the one that controls everything and all I have to do is be confident that he's in control and I'll tell you right now the secret to being really at peace is to really truly understand that God is in control and always believe it no matter what seems to be coming your way no matter what seems to be happening to you remember that God is in control and his favorite book there the hiding place Uh, You know, when, when they were put into that barracks with all the fleas and the lice and they were, and our sister was praying, you know, God, thank you for the fleas and the lice and, you know, why was it a good thing? Because none of the guards came into their, came into their barracks. They could have Bible study. They could do all these other things. Yes, they had to put up with fleas and lice, but the guards did not want to come in because they didn't want to be exposed to all that stuff. So there was great freedom in them having that environment. We need to be able to look. God has a blessing for us in all that he allows to come our way. He says in 1 Corinthians, There is no temptation overtaken us but such that is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will with temptation provide a way of escape. Everything we go through is common. Satan's lie to us is you're the only one that this ever happens to. And we've all been there at some point in our life where we've made a mistake and we get the pity party of, well, nobody's gonna like me if I do this because man, I'm the only one that's ever gone through this. Then when you finally start giving the testimony, you find out there's thousands of people just like you, if not millions of people just like you, who've gone through the same problem because there is nothing new under the sun. Everything is a common temptation. And Satan loves to lie to us and say, well, you're such a loser. You know, nobody ever falls for this, but you did. And we will get shamed into never admitting it. And as soon as you start sharing it, everybody goes, oh, yeah, I understand that. And you realize I spent all these years being ashamed of something or months or weeks or, or decades. It was common. Lots of people have gone through it. Satan likes to keep us separated from other Christians. He likes to keep us in shame. He likes to keep us in condemnation. And we need to be able to say, God, I agree with you. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything is common. And you are in control. The more you believe these things, the easier life gets to to live because you know that God's in control. When we look at each other, when we look at our lives and at certain points in our life, we look back and say, well, I really messed up. You know, look how my kids are acting. when my oldest son went off went off on a tangent away from God I went through that whole process and you know what I could have very much blamed myself because for the first many years of his life I was a workaholic and hardly ever at home there was a lot of blame to be put on me for not directing him in the direction that he was supposed to go but God also got hold of me and said no you did what you could you you made some mistakes he is accountable for his issues And we need to come to this. If we have influence in people's lives and we make mistakes, we need to confess we've made mistakes, we need to repent. But ultimately, they are still accountable. Yes, God will give us judgment and and discipline for our part. But they are accountable for what they do with it. Same thing for a teacher in in the Bible. If I make a mistake in teaching, God is going to discipline me for making my mistake. People may go down the wrong path, but it is still their problem also because, as I said, we're to be good Bereans when we're being taught. We're to get in and say, is what was said true? Not just believe it because my great teacher that I really love taught me this and wander down the wrong path and never go back and study your, study your scriptures. You will be accountable for having done that as a learner. And the teacher will be accountable for leading you down the wrong path to begin with. But we are each accountable for our own actions. And for those of us who have children, grandchildren, family members that we have influence over, we're not accountable for their lives. We do the best we can with God. We we, we, we encourage them. But they are ultimately (coughs) responsible for their decision. Even if I was a total failure... (laughs) in my raising of them, they are still accountable for their, their, their life because nobody twisted their arm and made them follow in that, in that path. And one might even say they should have learned their lesson by watching the parent who failed or the teacher who failed or whatever. But we want to be very careful that we look and say, God, you're in control. And the more we believe that, the better off we will be. When bad things happen to us, and I've said, my, some, my biggest comment that I'll ask God is, God, I don't understand this. But, you've said you're in control. You've said it's for good. So I'm just, you may be holding on to that last knot on the rope at the end of, your, end of the rope. And that rope is that one promise on the Bible. And you go, God, I'm just holding on to this. I don't understand it. I, and then you watch how God works. It is wonderful to watch Him work And there in those times when you just hold on to the truth because of the The test is designed to see are you going to hold on to that truth? Am I going to truly believe that God is in control? Or am I going to reject that He's in control? Am I truly going to believe that He is sovereign and nothing comes His way except what He wants to come my way? Or am I going to try to do things my way? And trying to do things my way has never been good for me. And most everybody that I've talked to, it's not been good for them either. All right, verse 7. If there be among you a poor man Of one of your brethren within any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from the poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide unto him and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that what he wants. Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying, The seventh year is uh, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him not. And he cries unto the Lord against you, and it be a sin unto you. You shall surely give him, and your heart shall not grieve when you give unto him, because that, is for this, because that for this thing the Lord your God shall bless you in all your works, and all that you put forth your hand unto. And the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide unto your brother, and to your poor, and to your needy in your land. So we look at this and he says, if there's a poor man that's near you, God says, open wide your hand, help them out, be generous to them. This goes back to the beginning of what I said. You can't outgive God. God is going to bless. He's going to honor. But he says, don't harden your heart. Again, there is verses in Proverbs that say, you know, that we want to be careful. Don't, you're not helping a slothful person. If somebody is just poor because they will not get off their butt and do any work, that's a different thing than having somebody who is poor. The widow, the orphans, the person who is maimed and diseased, somebody who cannot work needs all the help they can get. And what we're seeing in our day and age, there's a lot of people who should be able to work, and they've got their hands out all the time. For Those are not the ones that are, they're not even really poor by full definition because they could get out and work. And our government is building this mentality up of hold your hand out and get get money. The whole system is designed in this way. And people are now in this place where it is a entitlement mentality that people have. I'm alive, so I'm owed things from everybody else. But he says, open wide your hand to him that is in want because God is blessing. Even at this, when I was living in Sacramento, a lot of people would ask me when I was teaching Sunday school, what do you do with all these panhandlers that want money? I'm going, well, if God can, tells you to give, give with a clean heart. If, they get, if you give to the wrong person and you had the right heart attitude, God's going bless to bless you and, and they will have to answer to God. Mm-hmm. It, it really comes down to what is our attitude? Am I giving to somebody because I feel I'm obligated to give them? Or am I giving them because I think God wants me to give to them to bless them? If you've given because you think God wants you to bless them, then be my guest. Give to your heart's content and watch God bless you. This has been my attitude over the years. If somebody has taken advantage of me, it's not my problem. It's their problem between them and God. Because I'm just going to be as kind as I can to them, as, as free as I can be. Between them and God, what they do with the money. Same thing when I give, a, give somebody something. I give them a gift. If they really didn't need it, then it's between them and God. And God will take care of their attitude and God's gonna bless me because I was being generous and this is where I encourage people be very generous don't be why you know, don't be foolish don't necessarily help people who don't need need the help and I've been sitting on benevolence committees at many times and it's amazing how many people you see every month with their hand out wanting money and it's like well what are you doing to earn money well I've got this uh ankle that that twinges me or this knee that twinges me or this that or the other thing and I can't work Has the government recognized that you're on just oh no they just won't recognize it well obviously you're probably not as unhealthy as you're trying to make us believe we see people that just want to be given give me give me give me and it's not just the poor that are in this place our government spends millions of dollars to the corporations to not make things to keep the prices But God has always determined that he's going to bless the ones that give. Because he he wants us to be living in such a way that giving becomes who we are. Because otherwise, if we hold on to it too tight, we're making money and possessions our God. And this is the problem. This is why he wants an open hand and generous spirit. Because he owns everything and he's going to give it back. He's going to make sure our needs are met. Even if we're being foolish and just throwing it away, God can bless us even then. Because he, because he is not going to be outgiven. He's going to give back. Verse 9 says, beware that you think not in your heart, wicked heart. The seventh year or the year of release is at hand. And your eye becomes evil with your brother and you give him nothing. So in other words, it's the sixth year and your brother, your brother asks you for thousands of dollars you don't go, well, I'm going to lose it at the end of the end of the year, so no, I'm not going to give them. That God says, no, you, if, you, if it's somebody who is truly in need, you help them. And this is very important for us, being able to look to help one another. And the greatest thing about being part of a Christian family is that people will, will help, as long as you're not trying to take advantage of them. And it's amazing to me how many people show up at the door of a church to ask for help. You know, you never see them when they don't need help. Mm -hmm. You know, you never see them when, you know, to just come into the doors. But when they need help, they're right at the door. And those ones kind of bother me a little bit. But if they need help, I'm going to help them if if the church can. And our church doesn't have a large amount to help. But we do have the food bank. We help people with food, you know, as much as possible. But there's this point where if somebody is always at your door, you start wondering, you know, how are you living? How are you paying your bills? How are you, how would you make your ends meet? And then you start getting to know them and they're smoking three packs of cigarettes a day and they're drinking uh, two cartons of beer you know, each day and shoot, shooting three lines of Coke. You know, and you're going, okay, well, now I understand you don't need our help. You just need to stop doing all these bad things. But we need to be able to look to people and say, I'm going to help as much as possible. And if we're being helped and it's not needed, then God's God's still going to bless. They just have to answer to them. On the same side of the coin is, I had to learn the hard way myself that when somebody wanted to give me something back in the days when we were really poor, sometimes it's hard to accept gifts. And I learned one thing about that is, if I don't take the gift, I'm really stealing the blessing that God had intended for them. So we want to be able to learn some generosity and we also want to learn some graciousness if God, God is in a place where we need help. Because sometimes it may be just take it and give it away. If you really don't think you need what they're giving you, take it and give it to somebody else. But don't take their blessing away as they're trying to give. It's also really stealing. If, if God has put it on somebody's heart to give you something, just graciously accept it. You may not, re- you may not even know that you need it. And may, maybe you take that gift and the next thing you know that you're you're, something went out at your house and you need to replace it. You, know, you never know what it is because God knows already. And if you really don't need it, God will put the person to give it to in, in your path. Be, be generous and also be gracious. If God puts it on somebody's heart to give you, accept it. Because who knows why it's there. You'll never know. never understand why sometimes. But it says that verse 10 says, you shall surely give him and your heart shall not grieve when you give because for that is this thing which the Lord shall bless you in all your works and shall, that you put your hands to. If you're generous with them, God says, I will bless you in return. Now when we talk about being blessed in return, that doesn't mean you just sit in your, your easy chair at home and wait for the money to rain down upon your head. He says, and in all that you put your hand unto... God gives blessings. He gives the rewards. He gives the pay raises. He gives the increase in hours. If you plant the garden, the fields and gardens, you've got a greater increase because of the blessings that God put on it. And it says the poor, then verse 7, 11, the poor shall never cease out of the land. Now he did say that before, if they obeyed all of his commandments, the poor, there would be no poor. Mm-hmm. Here he's already saying, you're not going to keep my commandments. <laughs> The poor will never cease to be there. He goes, I already know you're not going to keep my commandments. He didn't say it straight out, but you see that in here. If you obey me, you won't have poor. And he goes, then he, later, then he says, the poor will always be in your land. God already knew that they weren't going to keep the commandments. God already knew that there wasn't going to be straight blessings. But he says, you shall open your hand wide unto your brother, to the poor and the needy in your land. To those who are truly in need, those who are truly poor, we help. Mm. Those who aren't truly poor in need, use your discernment. But if you have a question, give it to them. It's not going to hurt. There's, there's many people, all the panhandlers here in, King, in Kingman, I don't give to any of them because they're the same people on the corner. Then they're the same people on the corner that have been there for, for over two years. Uh, so I don't think that they're poor and needy. To me, they, they need to get up and do some work. I don't give to them. Every once in a while, I'll look at somebody and go, I've never seen this person. Maybe they have a real need and I might give to them. God is saying, have an open hand, have an open heart, be willing to help one another. And this is so important for us. All right, we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to learn of you. Lord, we help you teach us to be generous with what you've given us. Teach us to be discerning on who is in need and who is poor. Help us to be gracious if people are bid by you to give us things. Help us to be very generous when it's time to give. Help us to be ones that will not regret our generosity because you will bless it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.